Welcome to Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and over the course of these series, I've been chatting to artistic directors Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod about what they have learned about life and theatre in four decades of making plays all over the world. You're listening to one of our special bonus episodes to celebrate the run-up to Christmas. I sat down with Declan to talk about one of his theatrical pet peeves. Hello, Declan. Hello, Lucy. So, Declan, we've been talking a lot this week about the problem with the words body language. Yes. Why don't you like that phrase? I don't like the expression body language because it slightly patronises the body and slightly elevates the word language, as if, oh, isn't the body clever? It can almost speak. You know, it's like some. It, it implies that it's a kind of it's at some sort of lesser level than language, and this is all part of the con of um, you know the, I guess the necessary con of civilization. The idea that language comes first and the body comes second. Actually, there'd be no language if there wasn't a body. Language is a development out of the grunts and noises that we make with our mothers when we're we're born, and we communicate with them quite well, I think. Um, and then this these gets developed into language, and then language develops again, and then language and the analytic side of the brain, that starts to take over. Words are an essential part of our operating system, but unfortunately they have a tendency to take over. The thing is that our internal life is much more complicated and much more mysterious than words can ever possibly contain. So this means, effectively, that when we talk to each other, we're always using a form of Google Translate because words can't possibly fully sum up what's going on inside our heads. This becomes particularly true as the stakes go up um, when words become a decreasingly useful tool for sharing experience with other people. The more the stakes go up, the more inaccurate that translation is going to be. Words are useful, but we can't depend on them. The danger is that we'll think that the main communication takes place in words and sort of gestures and movement and breathing and so on are kind of add-ons. But that re- it really, that's the wrong way round. We actually, words are only part of the physical way that we communicate with each other. Body language, we have to remember that language is just a function of the body. Everything is just a function of the body. And, that, um, and it's a very important distinction to make. And that the body comes first. And the body calls the shots. And I find this such an interesting way of thinking about plays because I think particularly in this country, we really fetishise text um, in plays. There's a really strong tradition of like really loving text from Shakespeare to new writing. And sometimes that obsession with text can get in the way of actually examining the bodily event in a play. It can. I mean, let me say I love words. Um, I've, I've always been quite enjoyed using words I come from a family that talk too much and you know it's important to be articulate and <laughs> and you know I talk far too much um, and I use a lot of words and I love words and I love poetry but the idea that the body somehow can get up to the level of language it has its own kind of not so quite good way of communicating as language is appalling really and it's to do with it's only a symptom of a, of a huge malaise, which is the demotion of the body. What I think is very useful if you're making theatre is to put two things in opposition that don't seem to be in opposition, but to, again, not true but useful, just think that there are two things that are kind of basically in conflict with each other. And one is meaning, and the other one is the body. And we often use meaning to hide from the body. Any insights 
I should say, that I've had into Shakespeare um, have not come from me or me and Nick thinking about the meaning of the words and talking about the meaning. None of the insights that you've heard here have come from that at process at all. They've come from the collision of, of actors on stage. They've come from the collision of um, the words with the world. They've come from the embodied experience. And that's, that's incredibly important. It's only by embodying the experience and then meaning can come out. But meaning follows the body. I'm not saying we should mistrust meaning, but we should keep it in its place. You know, what does it mean? What does it mean? You know, the idea of asking Shakespeare what his plays meant, or what, does it, what do these lines mean? It's quite dangerous because it often overrides the body. And the body frightens us, frankly. Everybody's body frightens them because one day it's going to say, time's up. I think what the artist does, well, a director, for example, or an actor, you have black shapes on white paper. These are kind of ideas. And our job is to embody them. And, uh, and, and we can say, yes, we have to know what the words mean first. And you think, yeah, you need, have to know what the words mean a bit or enough to start, but it's only through experiencing the words through the body that, you, that any real meaning is going to um, come down to you. And, and, you know, I, I work a lot on Macbeth, and it means more and more to me, but not because I read the play over and over again. I never read it. I'm probably terribly misquoting it by now. But I watch it in workshops and different languages and so on, and it's what it does to people's bodies. That's what really interests me. And in the last few weeks, it's been an interesting time for Cheek by Jowl because you've been doing a lot of auditions. Yeah. And there's something kind of magic that you do in auditions that I've seen you do, which is that when an actor is a bit adrift, mm -hmm. you just get them to go and touch the wall mm -hmm. and then start speaking again. Mm -hmm. And it seems so simple and it completely changes the whole performance. And it seems to be something about reminding the actor's body that it's an interaction with space. It's a bodily event happening in three dimensions with the space around them, not just a text that they have to get a logical meaning across with. So yeah, I often ask the actors to touch the wall and then it seems completely different afterwards. But it's not magic. It's just simply reminded them that they're in a space and that we can so easily forget when we're acting and we're doing theatre when we talk, particularly when we start talking about meaning. We can get cut off from the space very, very easily. So yeah, that's just uh, that's just a, uh, there are other things that we do as well to take something away from um, people, which is the idea that they can be independent of the space because of course nobody can. And we love to obsess about the meaning of, for example, Shakespeare's plays because we're rewarded for doing that in our education system. You know, you're going to have to sit an exam in this country at some point in which you analyse Shakespeare's plays and get points for understanding the meaning. But that seems pretty deathly when we actually get into a rehearsal room. Yes, well, the body is profoundly transgressive. And one of the reasons I think we have exams is, is that it's a way of controlling and somewhat commoditizing and measuring somebody's understanding in something else. And the idea that you go through your life and because you get cleverer, because you absorb more information, then you are, you understand more things. It doesn't really work like that at all. You know, you have to get rid of things as you go through your life. You're continually realising you're hoarding crap in your head. You've got to empty your, the flat of your head out frequently. And I remember we were talking about this divide between the body 
and the meaning, the distance between the two, when we were thinking about Olivia in Twelfth Night. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so for example, after she meets Cesario and he goes, she says, how now, in so quickly may one catch the plague. So she says that to the audience. It would be a huge mistake to think that perfectly describes the interior of her head. Of course it doesn't. She's she's suffering this enormous collapse, upset, turn around. She's got no words for it. It strikes her to her astonishment. She's fallen in love. And amazingly, she discovers that falling in love is quite an unpleasant experience because it puts you out of control. And she's been Mrs. Control, as we know, and she's employed Malvolio to be uber Mr. Control. And anyway, so like everybody else, she's using Google Translate to us. She can only describe it as like the plague. And it's interesting, it's like the plague because it's the whole body. You know, she's got the full symptoms. I have to say, I was sick the other night. I ate something that disagreed with me. And um, Australians have great (laughs) expressions for vomiting. One is, of course, the famous uh, Technicolor yawn. But the one I most love is shouting at God down the big white telephone. (laughs) (laughs) And it's quite interesting. You know, you're you're genuflecting, you're kneeling in front of the loo with your head into it, trying to get this terrible thing up, whatever it was. And you see the different layers of everything you ate that day coming up. It was that, it was that. But the body kind of humiliates you. And every muscle in my body, my shoulders, everything, it's just awful. And so it's wonderful, actually, to be humiliated by the body in a way. It's like your whole identity gets taken down a notch or two and you get this kind of really quite useful correction um, of your ideas above yourself, you know. And the body the body um, calls the shots. The body's going to tell you when you're going to die. The body's going to tell you... Has, there are all sorts of surprises in our bodies that are going to jump up and get us. We don't know what they are and when they're going to be. But that night I was just shuddering and thinking about this point that our bodies are quite frightening to us because they have so much control over us. Of course we have choice about what we do with our bodies, but they are quite frightening things. And so the amazing thing about that line with with Olivia when she says, how now, even so quick, may one catch the plague, it's not useful for the actress playing that part to think, I need to get the meaning of this line across. No, the salvation by meaning is one of the saddest things you can see, that the actors think, all I need to do is really mean the lines and everything will be okay. That's as you know, mad as thinking, it doesn't matter what I do as long as I've got love in my heart, you know. <laughs> incredibly wrong I mean you need enough meaning to get through it but you have to experience the whole thing and the interior of of what you're experiencing is going to be completely different so in her moment of of upset she's she's lonely that's important she feels on her own because she needs to speak to us Um, so she's actually making a desperate gesture of connection towards us and asks us a question can you catch the plague so fast my whole body seems to have changed and she's shouting at God down the big white telephone in another way she's her whole body's been been taken over by this feeling on this point i should say that everything we say effectively is a lie actually because you're trying to describe something that's indescribable so when she says even so quickly may one catch the plague it's her best way of of, of describing the fact that her body is out of control her body is calling the shots and so the meaning of the words such as they are mm. are just her desperate and kind of inaccurate attempts mm to try and explain what that bodily experience is. Meaning, I'm afraid, is a paltry thing because it can't possibly 
reproduce the effect of experience. Nothing that I say can possibly reproduce experience. But my job as a director is to take these black shapes on white paper and give them a body and embody them with the actors because it's only through the body that they live. So, yeah, words aren't alive. Words are like dead hair on the hairdresser's floor. That's what words are. And we have to give them life. We have to give them a body. We have to give them oxygen and and, and flesh and blood. Um, And that's what we have to do. That's our job. So people sometimes say, it must be so strange working in a foreign language. Um, And I say, well, actually, when I'm working in English, it's also a foreign language because it doesn't really correspond to the interior of my head. One of the reasons I think we're attracted to verse and poetry is the fact that I think that verse and poetry are nearer to our inner experience of ourselves than anything else. So we live kind of huge lives which are pretty inexplicable and verse and poetry which deals with the boundaries, I suppose, of what we can explain. Yes. It's closer to that kind of epic magnitude of, the, mm. of how we're experiencing things. Yes, in, inside us, I think we're all at, at the centre of an epic with, with Odysseus on the, on, on the high seas. Um, we tend to experience our lives as an epic even if we're um, overwhelmed by a sense of our own futility and insignificance, even our insignificance can take on a sort of epic quality. So I think that we keep coming back to verse plays that use poetry because I think they come closer to the experience of what it's like to be inside our heads. But of course, it's not that close. But prose is a long way away. You know, prose is yet another step away. And what I think is so wonderful about looking at plays like this is it makes you realise how much the characters are struggling against the text in many ways. That it's not just about trying to get the meaning of the text across. The text has often not got enough meaning in it for them to explain the thing that's going on. I mean, I think you once said Hamlet only speaks so much because he can't find the right words for it. Yes, that's why he goes on and on, because he can't find the right words for it. And at the end, with the rest is silence, he's so relieved. And as Beatrice says to Benedict, stop my mouth, because actually I'm sick of these words because they just don't do what they're supposed to do, because she's so tired of being witty. She's so tired of being Mrs Funny that she'd love the rest is silence. She'd love to be very quiet for the rest of her life, I think. And actually, Shakespeare knows that words are torturous. I mean, isn't that what Caliban says to Prospero in The Tempest? Yes, it's perhaps the angriest thing that Caliban says to Prospero in a play of a lot of insults. He says, you taught me language. And from Caliban's point of view, that's the moment when Prospero took his innocence away from him. It's very important to distinguish between um, sounds and words. As soon as we're born, we start to make noises, different sorts of noises. We communicate with our mothers through these noises. And they're connected with heartbeats, they're connected with breathing, they're connected with physical affection, physical closeness. But through these noises, and and our mothers start to talk to us by making noises as well. They, They know they can't speak in words. And we naturally communicate like that. We communicate actually really rather well. I think it's arguable that we never get back to that level of dialogue, really. But we need words in order to organise our feelings. There's all sorts of reasons why we have words, but they're, they're also very misleading. When we do plays, we normally start by breaking down the words into syllables and sounds, say to them moving in the space, say to them maybe touching each other, you touch each other on certain syllables, you play with the sound of the words, you feel the sound of the words, and then you reassemble them into words. And then it's interesting how much extra meanings 
the words acquire if you do that. And that process is faster and deeper than being immersed in dictionaries for hours on end. The actual sound of the words is um, in, um, unbelievably important. And it, it communicates so much, so vividly and so violently to us. And it's very important that we, we approach language sensually. But the important thing is to not get obsessed by the meaning because the meaning can become a defense against living and the meaning can become a defense against the body. And the verse has to be discovered sensually through the body. So yes, you have some idea of what it means, then you break it down, then you do it in different situations, you might do it in moving in different ways, but you keep tr trying to get rid of meaning to just sound the syllables. Then when you put it back together again so that it has meaning, it's amazing the different meanings thing it takes on, having been broken apart. You, know, you have to disassemble it. And I've seen these uh, exercises in action where you basically divorce the meaning from the sounds of the words and let the sounds exist as muscularly in the space. You have to strip the words of all their meaning. That's the first thing. You have to strip the words of their meaning. You have to disassemble the sounds. You have to break up, dismantle words into syllables. And you just sound them separately and see what they sound like shouted across the room or whispered in a corner of the room or done on the run. And then you put them back together again and see what they mean. And you come up with all sorts of completely different meanings, much richer, much more extraordinary different meanings that you would have found than if you had sat around a circle with pens and a cup of coffee marking your script and think what does this really mean what does this really mean open that dictionary see what that really means dig 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 into the deep meaning of this um you can do that it takes a long time and it doesn't get me very far i must say these exercises with sounds work faster and deeper. And this is what's so interesting, I think, about looking at cheek by jowl rehearsal rooms. I mean, so many rehearsal processes traditionally start with what's called table work, where you do sit down around a table with a script, with lots of highlighters and post-it notes and pencils and pens, and talk about the play for, you know, sometimes weeks, some productions will do that. But that's anathema to the way that you work. That's completely anathema to the way where that makes me feel quite ill, thinking <laughs> of the idea of sitting around... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that works for other companies and other people have produced great theatre like that. I think table work probably works very well for some people. Um, it's just not what we do. Meaning only gets you so far. The body will get you further. Yes, you need to come back to meaning, but it needs to be continually reborn. Every word needs to be continually reborn through the body. Otherwise it atrophies, it atrophies, it atrophies. It's just like um, a sea lion or a human being underwater coming up for air. You, you come up for air by reconnecting to the body. And if you disconnect from the body too long, you'll uh, drown. I think it's also such a human way of looking at these plays. I mean, the writer Emma Smith talks about what makes Shakespeare brilliant is what she calls his gappiness, that actually the texts defy being pinned down to mean one thing. They're full of gaps for you to step into with your imagination. And actually what Shakespeare is doing a lot of the time is writing text that is deliberately ambiguous. That's the joy of these plays. Yes, sometimes it's deliberately ambiguous, but um, the thing is he doesn't really have any choice because the words are, actually, and words mean all sorts of different things depending on the intonation behind them. So it's the actual sound of words that affects us. We're actually affected, we're actually touched by the words. There are vibrations in the space and they affect our bodies. They enter our bodies through our ears. And... I've seen you do it before. I've seen you say to actors, OK, now you've got to do the whole scene with no words. No, quite. I like them to do etudes in which they try to play the scenes in silence and we see what happens to their bodies. 
and then we'll, we'll do bits of words or bits of lines, mostly bits of words, to hear what they sound like. But it's very interesting when you put them together again. It's sort of like, it sounds like magic to begin with. How, how did it get so many different meanings? But it's because we... It's because of this vanity in the expression body language that we forget that the body calls the shots and we forget in words that the sound of the words is much more important than the meaning. Um, and we can forget it and forget it and forget it. But that's why people love song, because it understands that. And it seems like quite a good discipline as a director sometimes as well to remind yourself not to hold on to what you call black shapes on white paper as the paramount thing about the play. Well, there can be a holiness about the text. You know, there's a halo can rise above and say it's all in the text, it's all about the text. One thing the text is, can never be is sacred. Only the spirit can be sacred. But that's going to be not to do with the meagre thinness of verbal meaning. And that's why Caliban's quite right to be outraged that Prospero has taken his innocence away from him. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Not True, But Useful. The music you're hearing was composed by Sergei Chekrashov for Cheek by Jal's production of Three Sisters. Stay tuned for more bonus episodes to come. And until then, stay well. <laughs>